We're going to be in Mark 11, uh, starting with verse 27, and then continuing on to 12:12. So if you join me, I'm going to read this. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came in. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Keep those Bibles open to page 708, right? So you can follow along. Because it begins with a question. It begins with a question. Just yesterday, seemingly out of nowhere, with no advance notice or permission, Jesus came into the temple. The heart, the centerpiece of life for Israel, its religion, its politics, its economics, its traditions, its heritage. Jesus came right into the heart, the centerpiece of life for Israel and started turning over tables, clearing people out and obstructing the normal flow of activity. By what authority are you doing this? No one. And I mean no one likes it when someone messes with their stuff. You don't come into my house, into my workspace, and rearrange the furniture. You don't take control of my calendar and reschedule my appointments. You don't insert yourself into my life and tell me how to live it. By what authority are you doing this? That's the question. 
We all have questions. What's our question for Jesus? Is it this one? By what authority are you doing this? Who asked you to barge in on my personal, my private space? Who told you you could turn the neatly constructed, carefully maintained reality of my life upside down? Who said you had permission to clear stuff in my temple? To clear out stuff in my temple? Things, people, relationships, stuff that I worship and adore. What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? It's interesting how we all tend to have questions for Jesus. We all tend to have questions for Jesus, answers we want, answers we may even demand. But we don't often stop and notice how Jesus has questions for us. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Do we notice that Jesus' answers for us often come by way of a question? I mean, and this isn't because Jesus is dodging or unable to answer our questions. No, Jesus' answers come by way of questions to reflect the truth back at us. What truth? The truth that sometimes a question isn't a question. That sometimes a question is a way of avoiding the answer. We're good. We're good at asking questions to avoid answers. We're well practiced at talking as a means of not listening and reflecting. I mean, after all, the best defense is a good offense, right? The more questions I have for you, the less I have to explain myself. Lots of us have questions for Jesus. What's yours? We all have questions for Jesus, but are we ready for the answers? If we ask Jesus a question, are we willing to receive the answer, his answer. Because you see, the answer to most of our questions is almost always discovered in the answer to Jesus' question. The answer to our questions is almost always discovered in the answer to Jesus' question. Who do people say that I am? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Is it permitted on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? What do you want me to do for you? Can you drink? From the cup, I will drink. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Who do you say that I am? Jesus' questions reveal our true motives, our real agendas, from where we are honestly coming at God. 
John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Tell me. Like the gathering here in Mark, we discuss Jesus' questions among ourselves. We remember that it was John's baptism where Jesus first burst onto the landscape of our lives. It was John's baptism where we first heard the answer to our question. When Jesus pointed to him, when John pointed to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when the heavens opened up as Jesus came up out of the water and a voice was heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How much more authority? How much more authorization does Jesus need? If we say from heaven... He will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you listen to me? Why do you put a limit on forgiveness? Why do you insist on drawing a line between loving your neighbor and loving your enemy? Why do you continue to have on your mind not the things of God, but the things of men? Why? Do your hearts remain hardened? If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why do you ignore me? Why do you turn a blind eye? Why do you not lift a finger? Why do you, not e do you deny even a cup of cold water to me? When you see my gaze, encounter my presence among the least of these. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe me? Why? Do you hear my words and not put them into practice? Why do you continue to build your house, your temple, your life on the sand? Rather than on these words of mine. But if we say of human origin, but if we say of human origin, why are we here? Why do we keep coming back? If we say of human origin, then why do we call ourselves Christians? If we say of human origin, then what makes him, what makes Jesus any different, a better authority in our lives than anyone else? If Jesus asks a question, are we willing to receive his answer? If we ask Jesus a question, are we willing to see ourselves as we are? Not the front, not the brave face, not the veneer we put on. If we ask Jesus a question, are we willing to confront the answers we already have, but we refuse to accept or act upon? We must wrestle with the answers we already have, or will we instead when Jesus questions us in order to give us the answers we seek to point us back to the answers we have already been given, will we instead look him in the face squarely, shrug our shoulders and say, we don't know. We don't know. They feared the people for everyone held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Like children before their parents. What's going on here? How did this happen? Why did you do this? We answer, I don't know. 
we answer, we don't know. We don't know. So Jesus tells us a little story. Jesus tells us a little story with a big message. A man planted a vineyard. He constructed a fence around it, dug a trough for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. It's the Bible in miniature. It's the story of Genesis. It's the story of Genesis, of a garden, of the expectation of a harvest, of cultivating every opportunity, of being fruitful and multiplying. It's the story of Israel, of a vineyard right out of the prophecies of Isaiah, about the anticipation of making wine, of the squeezing of the most out of every opportunity, of sharing the fruit of the vine with all nations. It's the story of discipleship, of all those who would profess to follow Jesus, of the covenant promise of satisfying a universal thirst for holy communion in a fractured world, of coming to the table prepared before us and drinking from the cup that overflows of a kingdom established on peace, justice, and righteousness. But it's also a story about our denial of responsibility. Denying we owe our creator anything. As we just keep returning his correspondence to us unopened. As before his repeated requests for a little produce and offering, we remain defiantly empty-handed. It's also the story about our rebellion against heavenly rule. Rebelling against the right of our king to expect anything from us. We refuse to recognize his crown as we strike his messengers on the head. We dishonor his decrees by battering, bruising, and even executing his ambassadors. And it is finally a story about the rejection of a relationship. Rejecting any meaningful relationship with our father going all prodigal with our eye on our inheritance, killing the light of the sun, throwing ourselves out of the garden, and losing the blessing of the vineyard. The breakdown, the disconnect, the tension, the problem, the tragedy, the big reveal, the true confession in the story is we presume ownership of our lives. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right over my body, my choices, my decisions, my lifestyle, over my practices, over my plans, over my future, over my retirement, over my life? We deny, we rebel, we reject the fact that we are stewards. We are created, given life. We are not self-made. We are not self-sustaining. We are an investment. We are not independently funded. We are tenants farming the land, but not owning it. 
Yet we make our plans, we fill our calendars, and we ignore the fact that we are living on borrowed time. We strive, we succeed, notching achievements, collecting trophies, making a name for ourselves, but forgetting that we're advancing with gifts and talents on loan from God. We accumulate wealth, we amass resources, we expand our portfolio, we save our pennies for a rainy day. Sometimes we even have money to burn. But we reject the idea that we're operating on an extended line of credit. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right to tell us how to tell time? To tell us what success is, what it means to be first? To tell us that to whom much has been given, much is expected? Are these really our questions? Are these really our questions? Do we really not know the answers? Do we really not know where his authority comes from? The ones asking these questions here, Mark tells us, are the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Because of their representation in the four Gospels, we tend to stereotype this group as being the villains of the story. But it is so important we realize, for the average Israelite in Jesus' time, These were understood to be the great men of Israel. Godly leaders, full of wisdom and virtue. Surely, of all people, they knew the answers. Surely, of all people, they would embrace the answer they had been waiting for. The answer they had based and centered their whole lives around. And yet these are the very ones, the leadership, who orchestrate Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his execution. Beloved, we need to hear this and we need to listen well. Perhaps one of the greatest shocks in all history Perhaps one of the greatest shocks in all history is that it was not because the religious leadership misunderstood Jesus that they had him arrested in secret in the dead of night. It was not because they failed to see that he was the Messiah that they tortured him, mocked him, and condemned him to death. It was precisely because they saw he was the son of God that they paid 30 pieces of silver. Strong arm punches Pilate and stoked the fire of an angry crowd to nail Jesus to the cross. By what authority are you doing these things? What gives you the right? We are hostile to anything. We are hostile to anything, to anyone who reminds us we are not owners, that we are tenants. We know it's true, but deep down inside, we don't want to believe that. We don't want to believe that ultimately our life is not our own. We prefer to think, we prefer to believe, we prefer to act like we don't owe God anything. And if you doubt this, if we doubt this, if you would like to try to distance or remove yourselves from this story, take out your calendar. Even if it's mentally in your mind, 
Take out your calendar. Open up your checkbook. Again, mentally, in your mind. Take out your calendar. Look at your checkbook. Look at it closely. Who's in charge of these? Who's in charge of these? By whose authority are these managed? By whose authority are these managed? Are we comfortable being audited by our dad? By our father? Are we willing to hand them over? Are we willing to hand them over to be directed? Maybe even cleaned out by his son, Jesus? Or do we find ourselves getting a little cross right now? Looking around for the hammer and the nails. Despite being given everything we need, not just to survive, but to thrive, we would rather make a name for ourselves rather than live like we got everything given to us. Despite having every desire provided for through God's garden, his vineyard, we would rather own it than be tenants in it. Beloved, this is the nature of human sin. This is our fundamental problem. And do we really not know what the owner of the vineyard will do? Do we really not know what the owner of the vineyard will do? Are these really our questions? Do we really not know the answers? Do we really not know what the owner of the vineyard has done? It begins with a question. It always ends with an answer. But sometimes, an answer is more than just an answer. Sometimes, an answer is the answer. Sometimes, the answer is the gospel. Like all meaningful answers, the gospel doesn't emerge out of beauty. It comes out of the confusion like the very first answer, the very first act of creation itself, the gospel comes out of nowhere, out of the chaos. The light that comes into the world is recognized by the darkness he pierces. Despite our best, or should we say worst plans to kill the air, Despite our fatal flaw, foolishly believing we could have any inheritance divorced from our Father and apart from the Son, despite the fact that in the raising of the cross, all our debts have been called and we have been found bankrupt, despite all of this, it turns out our God had bigger plans all along. Despite coming across the most ridiculous landowner ever, I mean, seriously, when you're dealing with ungrateful tenants, squatters who harass, maim, mock, and kill the ones you've previously sent to collect the rent, who sends their son into a reception like that? 
I mean, common sense dictates you don't send your son to the firing squad. You let the law deal with it. You let the law deal with it. You send in the troops, not your one and only. And yet, despite all this, it turns out our God is no fool. It turns out the greatest shock of history isn't that those who are most inclined, most prepared, the most expected to embrace the landowner rejected him to the point of killing his son. No, the greatest shock of history is the father recognized he was sending his son to die. The son understood his path was destined for death on a cross. The greatest shock of history is our God knew what he was doing all along. And our God knew the kind of people for whom he was doing all this. People like us. People who ask questions as a way of avoiding answers. People who deny, who rebel, who reject our responsibility to care, to bear, and to share any fruit from his vineyard. Yes, we absolutely owe God everything, but the greatest news of all, the gospel is this. Ultimately, God our Father is far more interested in being in relationship with us than getting his due from us. As we keep claiming ownership over our life, denying, rebelling, and rejecting God through the questions we ask in order to avoid the answers in front of us, the best answer we could possibly get, the only answer we need, the only answer that will save us is the love of this God demonstrated through his persistent and tireless pursuit of us, definitively expressed through the offering of his son. Just when it looked like it was over. Just when we had denied, rebelled against, and rejected even God's one and only son, our father's love for us couldn't be stopped by the death of Jesus. Please hear that. Our father's love for us couldn't be stopped by the death of Jesus. In fact, our father's love was most powerfully demonstrated through the death of Jesus. The greatest shock in all history is that in the death of Jesus was the beginning of our relationship with God. That through the very one we rejected came the foundation of our life-saving relationship with the Father. The most shock, greatest shock in all history is that Jesus literally loves us to death in order to give us a new lease on life. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Have you not read this scripture? Do you not know this answer? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it goes on, for the Lord has done this. And it goes on. And it is marvelous. Marvelous in our eyes. We all have questions, and there will always be time for questions. But beloved, it's time to start facing the answer. It's time to start practicing resurrection. The practice of resurrection comes out of the experience of facing death. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will kill them. They will die. He will bring them to death so they can live again. Practice of resurrection comes out of the experience of facing death. Because you see, practicing resurrection is passive. We don't bring ourselves back from the dead. We need someone to roll away the stone. We're brought back to life by Jesus. We receive life from Jesus. We are led out of the tomb by the hand of Jesus. Practicing resurrection, though, means you have to decide to get up and walk. Practicing resurrection means you have to choose to let go of the darkness and step into the light. We're helped out of our grave clothes by Jesus. Practicing resurrection means you have to be willing to put on new clothes. Practicing resurrection means we have to be open to a new way of living because after all, life after death is different than life before death. Life after death is different than life before death. Are you still waiting to die? Is that why you're living the way you're living? Or have you died and been resurrected? Because if you have, your life is different. It should look different. It should be different. It's intended to be different. And if it's not, then perhaps you don't realize it, but you're still living in the grave. You're still living in a tomb. You're still wearing grave clothes. Time to start facing the answer, beloved, rather than still disputing ownership. It's time to start facing the answer rather than continuing to try and hide from the landlord. It's time to start facing the answer rather than avoiding dealing with the inevitable fact that the rent is going to come due. The stone the builders rejected will either crush you or it will be your core. The stone the builders rejected will either be the foundation we build on or it will become the basis of our tombstone. We aren't saved. We aren't saved because of what we do or don't do. We aren't saved because of what we do or don't do. If you didn't hear anything else, if you didn't catch anything else, please catch that. We aren't saved because of what we do or don't do. But our new lease on life comes with the expectation of a crop, of yielding a harvest, of bearing the fruit of the good works that Paul writes our Father has prepared for us in advance through Jesus Christ. You see, and that's why we're here, that's why we come back. It's all right here in the good book, it's all right here. What, what begins in a vineyard is intended to become an orchard. What starts in a garden, page one. What starts in a garden, last page, leads to a city. Beloved, it's time to start facing the answer. It's time to start living for the gospel. It's time to start practicing resurrection. Amen.